Okay. I, okay, we're about ready to have prayer. I want to go through this again. Our goal in life is not to become super rich, but to get ready for heaven. So when our needs are met, then God wants us to share with others, as you understand. So I like this one. It should be our highest aim in life to get ready for heaven. And that's fifth volume of manuscript releases, page 255. So we'll have a short prayer and then begin. Heavenly Father, I thank you today for the privilege we have of knowing you. And I pray that you'll bless each of us as we look at these important principles regarding things that will be valuable to each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm going to tell you something just as a, by way of a little repeat, and that is it is clear in the scriptures from Deuteronomy 28, 1 to 14, and from Proverbs 3, 5 to 10, that God wants us to prosper and be blessed. Do you understand? So I believe personally that though God... Need, knows we need to, unless you live in a large city and can do you know, public transportation, it is likely you will need a car. So what I'm going to do is talk to you a little bit, and this is something I don't typically teach you on Sabbath because it's you know, too practical almost, but I'm going to talk to you. But you, know, you can lose your eternal life over money management, so you know, sure it would be important to talk about in church on Sabbath, but this one's going to be a little bit different than that, and this one's going to be making major purchases, how you can do that. Uh, this one is pretty interesting, and that's Luke uh, 14:28. Which of you intending to build a tower, by the way, you understand this is a house in the wall of the city, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? You know what the next verse says? Because if you don't make it, you'll get partway started, and all your friends will see it and laugh at you. Okay. All major purchases require a strategy that seeks two things. First of all, is quality and economy in the same transaction. Do you understand what I'm talking? Have you ever seen bait and switch things where they advertise something and you go to the store and it's not there, but they have this one, or this is not the same price, but it's you know cheaper? Well, it's typically a cheaper item. What you yes. want is a good item at a good price. Those are things that are important, okay? This strategy is often overlooked when impulse buying is practiced. And uh, I'm gonna tell you something interesting that, that Frequently, before people get married, they get the, men get the idea that women are budget busters. They'll go out and use their credit card to buy clothes or shoes or do all kinds of funny stuff. It is my personal observation after some 25 years of teaching this that almost always it is the men who bust the budget. Amen. <laughs> <And to> <laughs> When men are involved, it's an airplane or a bass boat or a pickup truck or something like that. You understand? It's not just, you know, it's big. It's, I'm serious about this or some really poor business decision. So I will just tell you that people need to work together to make their decisions. I sometimes, you've seen this uh, maybe on TV commercial or something about some guy that drives home in a new car and, you know, shows his wife and she comes out and, oh, you know, whatever. I would never do that. I wouldn't even think about it. Kathy and I always make joint decisions to gather anything over $100. We talk to each other. Now, that is almost goofy because the stuff costs a lot nowadays. I mean, when, when uh, gas prices were so high, it almost took $100 to fill up my car. <laughs> but you understand the principle there. You guys are in this together, and not one person manages all the money. You do it together. One person is the manager, but you make joint decisions. That's the thing I want to help you to understand. Okay, so we're going to talk about transportation decisions first. And I want to talk to you about used cars or new cars. And you, you'll be able to see, and by the way, if you have any question or comment here, we're going to talk about cars first and then houses. 
But I'll, I'm going to tell you about this. By the way, the whole segment of, of the U.S. car market is kind of in shambles right now because of the financial crisis and so on. But dealers have to sell a certain number of cars each month to maintain their business and their ordering status from the manufacturer. So they are ready to discount the sale price at the end of the month and especially at the end of the year. The very best price you could ever get on a new car would be the week between Christmas and New Year's. This is just automatically true because they want to get inventory off their list before the new year starts and so on. And of course, people are not thinking about buying cars, then they're thinking about buying gifts for all their friends. You understand? So if you show up on a car dealer's lot, they're going to swarm you like buzzards on a dead sheep. You know, it's just really interesting. It's true. The whole point is, though, you have to do lots of homework before you get there so you know you're getting a good deal. But in the meantime, we're going to talk about things. Should you buy used or new? Uh, if you like to trade cars often, buying a late model used car will keep you from paying so much depreciation. But if you keep your cars for about 10 or 12 years or more, you may wish to purchase uh, the best price new car. Uh, by the way, if you buy a new Honda Civic and keep it for 12 years, it will pay for itself twice. I've got all that in the book. You'll be able to see about it. It's very, very important to understand. When people buy new cars and sell them every two or three years just to be having a new car, then you're paying a lot of depreciation, as you know. But anyway, we'll get into this. Uh, the average used car in the United States sells for about $10,000 today. Americans spend over $100 billion a year to purchase more than 20 million used cars. I'm going to show you in just a minute that I think it is personally to your advantage to buy a new car if you can afford it. But in the meantime, I will tell you, every used car that is for sale is for sale for some reason. Isn't it true? Now, it might just be that a man and his wife are divorcing and they need to sell it or they're having a baby and they don't need a fifth car or whatever. But you should figure that out because most people get tired of their cars because something's wrong with it. I'm telling you the truth about this. Now, we're going to look in just a minute so you're going to be able to see this. Here's the deal. Look at this up here. New car dealers, these are places you can buy a used car. They supply, the supply usually comes from cars taken in as trade-ins for new vehicles. Warranties are often better, and the cars generally have lower mileage than other car sellers. This is on a new car dealer's used car lot. Uh, then there are used car dealers. Most of the cars at used car lots come from auto auctions, where dealers go there and, you know, with a dealer's license, and they buy stuff that no one can get rid of, typically. These cars are generally older and have higher mileage. They also obtain some cars that have been poorly maintained. They, you know, they just get it for some reason. And then there are also another third source. Private party vehicles can be a bargain if they've been maintained, and they are a nightmare if they're not. I'm going to tell you something interesting. I travel down New Hampshire Avenue every day to go to the general conference where I work on days when I'm home, and there's a guy that sells cars in his yard. He just parks it right on there. There's never more than one car there. So anybody that stops thinks that's his car that he's selling. But he buys them from other people. He just sells them there. So you have no idea whatever that car was, what happened to it. Whether somebody ran it, the oil dry in the engine and it's you know, just filled with STP or something. Who knows? You understand? The whole idea is, unless you know the history, you should, what's this caveat emptor, buyer beware? You, you understand. That's the idea. Now we're going to look at a couple of others here. Most used cars, even at a new car dealerships, are sold as is. They even have a sticker on them that says as is. What does that mean? If anything is wrong with this, you just bought it and you get to fix it. 
and the seller assumes no responsibility for any needed repairs. So regardless of any oral claims by the seller, did you hear what I just said? Now listen, I'm telling you as an attorney, unless it's in writing when you sign the contract, you're not going to get free service. Somebody will tell you almost anything to make a sale. You just need to understand that. Okay, regardless of any oral claims, so if a warranty is mentioned, you must get it in writing. That's important. Another one is inspection is a good idea. When I was younger, when I went to high school, academy, everybody, all the guys took auto mechanics. And you learned how to change a tire. And, you know, we even actually took engines apart and rebuilt them and so on in the auto class that I took. But nowadays, cars are so sophisticated with computers and everything, the average guy can only do, like, rotate the tires and change the oil. And that's about all he can do. Everything else has got to be really know what you're doing. Well, the, the thing... I think there is, but we tried that earlier. Would you try just a little bit to tweak it? What it does is it feeds back. What we need to do is to move that speaker farther back, I think. But anyway, just push up the, the person. Maybe that can go back just a little bit, and that will help a little bit. Okay. There's actually three seats on the front row, if anybody wants to come all the way up here. These are the Adventists. No, there's two seats. This guy, I'm just about to give you a seat away. Oh, there's some up here, too. Raise your hand. This is going to get better and better. So if you don't hear well, and I appreciate you doing that, there's two seats up here and two seats right here that you could come and get. Okay, and there's also one back here. Uh, by the way, I really am thankful you're here, and I'm sorry that I can't, you know, uh, get better out of this. There's only one speaker. That's the problem. Uh, but it's in the book. It's like Prego tomato sauce, you know, or spaghetti sauce is in there. So if you miss it, all the Bible text and all the quotations are in there. So you'll be able to get it. Okay. Uh, I will probably speak a little bit louder, but only half of you could hear that even if I did. But maybe that will help a little bit in the mic. Did that help at all with it turning up a little bit? Okay. I'll try to project a little bit stronger as well. So... Uh, what I'm going to tell you is the appearance of a used car may be deceptive. A rusty body may have a well-maintained engine inside. Clean, shiny exterior may conceal a major tr uh, drivetrain problem. By the way, many cars are showing up on the market that were clear underwater during Katrina. And that could be a very serious problem if you buy a car like that. So what do you have to do to find out whether it was like that? I mean, it's been steam cleaned and everything. You can pick up the carpet and smell underneath it and see what's in the salt water. You know, there's all kind of goofy stuff. But there's no, no warranty. So you could have a trained and trusted mechanic of your choice to check out the car, to estimate the present condition, and to determine the cost of any repairs that it might need. These are important things for you because everybody's going to need to have transportation. Uh, okay, here's what the factors that influence the price. The number of miles the car has on it, the features and options, and the age of the car. Uh, it's pretty interesting. You can find the price of a similar car in the newspaper, in car lots, on the internet, such sites as Edmunds Used Cars, Consumer Reports, those kind of things, you can find it. Most people are very savvy today. Uh, in fact, the, the uh, uh, Kathy and I, I remember just recently when we, uh, it's been some time ago when we bought our last car, but anyway, when I went in there, typically a car salesman will come out and talk to you, and once you come up with a deal, he has to go back and check it out with the sales manager. So I will just tell you, deal with the sales manager to start with, and then you don't have that problem. But anyway, they'll typically check it out. Oh, we can't do that. You know, could you do this or whatever? But I'm just going to tell you something very, very interesting. When I went to buy a car uh, some time back, 
a salesman talked to me and I heard him and I told him what I was willing to pay for the car. He went back to his sales manager and he said, he already knows the price on the internet. <laughs> so I heard him say that. So he came back with the internet price, which is pretty amazing. And they typically don't. I think they're much more eager to sell now, as you may know. But at any rate, what about a new car? The decision to buy a new car should never be based on impulse or emotional need. Instead, it should be based on your transportation needs and your financial readiness. So I'm going to talk about that. Once you determine through research which model car you want to purchase, you can check out the available options for that model on the internet, come up with a ballpark estimate of the price that you can expect to pay. The sticker price, which is on the window, is a printed form usually posted on the side of the vehicle for the suggested retail price. If you're unsophisticated, let me just tell you, as an attorney, I had a family come to me that were totally unsophisticated for purchasing vehicles. They were immigrants from Central America. They went to a dealership in Atlanta, Georgia, and they were sold a van, a passenger van. It was not a, a, a camper van, it just had windows along the side, for the full retail price on the sticker. In addition, they charged them, uh, uh, let me try to think what we call this. Uh, Dealer no, no, the various markups for you know all the different kind of Market things. Value. But they also charge them uh, uh, in insurance, and, and the kind of insurance is uh, it's a death insurance. But what do they call it? Credit life insurance of some two thousand dollars. It's incredible, and there were ninety days no payments. So they drove it clear to Arizona and back to visit friends. When the first payment came in the mail, they realized they couldn't make the payments. So they didn't know what to do. You know what they did? They drove the vehicle to the bank that had financed the loan, parked it, and put the keys in the night deposit box. That was the end of it for them, they thought. We'll just give it back to you. But the company and the bank were suing them for this extra money. Well, I was able to prove that they had took undue advantage of these people, and so they were able to take the car back without having to pay anything. But I will just tell you something incredible. Banks and most car dealerships do not love you. I'm just going to tell you that. I, I'm telling you the truth for your own benefit. Okay. The dealer's actual cost or invoice price is an amount less than the sticker price by considerable for most cars. The difference between the sticker price and the dealer's cost is the range that's available for negotiation. Now, there are some car dealers that do not negotiate with you. Saturn is one of those. They just set a price. Everybody pays that price. But most dealerships expect to. And they will even, by the way, uh, Ford has recently had all their cars in the Maryland area, $8,000 off the sticker price, no matter which car it is. This is incredible, really, because they're so desperate to move the vehicles. By the way, most of the dealerships have what's called a floor plan thing that they, uh, have, to, they have all the cars on credit, and they're paying interest on their credit loans for these cars the whole time they're sitting on their lot. So it's really important for them to move the cars, as you know. So Edmunds, Consumer Reports, and libraries and bookstores can give you ideas about this. So buying a new car, you can use the dealer cost information to negotiate a deal that's only a couple of hundred dollars typically over what the dealer paid for it. And I'm not going to mention, I'm only going to tell you this. Please understand that the Bible indicates that Christians should be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. So what I'm going to show you now is not at all deceptive. It is just being smart. 
And here it is. To prevent confusion in determining the true price of the car the dealer is offering, do not mention that you're going to trade in a car until after you have set the price for the new vehicle. Do you understand what we mean by that? Then you can ask him how much he will give you for your car based on that price. And then you can understand that he's really not going to give you anything for your car. Most of the time they just take your car. And you're better off selling it in the newspaper or to a friend or whatever if it's been well maintained. So I just say if the price is not acceptable, you sell the old car on your own. Or you can give it to charity because they were going to take you for it anyway. Don't, you guys have places where you live, back where we live, you can give used cars away and they'll give you a receipt for your income tax, you know, that kind of thing. Okay. Now, to avoid debt, especially long-term debt, take the purchase money from your transportation savings account. So let me just give you this. Anybody who has a budget should have a transportation line item. And let's just say that you're making payments on a car and it's $300. When you pay your car off, while you're still driving the rest of the good out of it, what should you be, do you be doing during that time? Putting your $300 in your transportation account so that the next time you go to buy, you can pay cash for it. It's very simple and you could easily do that if you would be willing to do it. However, when most people pay off their car, guess what? They now have $300 free, so they either trade their car and start it all over again, or they start spending it on something else. But if you have a transportation budget, you will understand you should have a savings budget, just like you have a transportation budget. You'll have money to pay cash for your car. By the way, most dealerships will, dis will try to persuade you not to pay cash for your car. I actually had a, a salesperson tell me, when we, we have a Toyota Avalon as one of our cars, when we bought that car, the dealer said, how are you going to pay for this? We have, you know, this plan or this plan or this plan or this plan, or you could lease it. You should never lease a car as an individual. Does everybody understand that? Yeah, right. We'll talk to you about it in just a minute on here. But I will just tell you, this is really, really valuable to know. And, you know, it's, you know, three years at 2% or, you know, whatever it is. And by the way, if they don't tell you the number of years, it is almost always six years now, which is really, really interesting. But I will just say, well, what about paying cash? I would just plan to write a check. Would that be okay? And he looked at, first he almost fainted. When he got himself back together, he said, why would you want to spend all that money on a car? You could put that money on the stock market and just be making lots of money. And what I said was, because I like to sleep well at night. And if I'm debt free, it's a whole lot easier. That's the point. Okay. Oh, let me back up here just a second. If you don't have enough in that part of your budget spending plan, then you'll need to borrow the balance. But as I told you with student loans, it is always to your advantage to pay as much as you can, not get as much financed as you can. Do you see what I'm saying? Because you have to pay it off. And that's really important to know. Take any rebates the car dealer offers you and get your own financing instead of taking the low credit rate and getting no rebate. It is always to your advantage to take any rebates and not take low interest. Because if you take the low like interest, you know, like 2% or 1% or whatever, then you're paying a much higher amount for the car. Under, this is what I just described to you. Under ideal circumstances, when your car is paid off, you should put the amount equal to the payment each month into your transportation savings account so you can pay cash when it's time to replace the old vehicle. Very interesting. Another one is, this is just kind of dust stuff, and that is, 
if you plan to keep your car a long time, take care of it. This is very, very valuable. I mean, even if you're a lady and you don't get under your car and change your oil, you can drive the Jiffy Lube or someplace and get it changed whenever it's time to do that. Oil changing is the number one value to anybody with a car, keeping clean oil and keeping it up to a full mark. Consumer reports found that if you keep your car going for 200,000 miles in 15 years, you may save as much as what you originally spent on the car. Uh, save as much, that's important. What about leasing a car? Here is what I would tell you. Leasing is a contractual agreement with monthly payments for the use of an automobile over a set period of time, typically two to five years. At the end of the lease term, the vehicle is usually returned to the leasing organization. However, three reasons why you shouldn't lease. First of all, no ownership of the vehicle in spite of all the money you've put, including a down payment and paying on it for three years. You have no equity in it at all. Must meet the requirements similar to those of qualifying for credit. And you may have to pay additional costs like over mileage. Oh, by the way, most of them have 12,000 miles on them on a lease and very few people drive less than 15,000. So you have to pay like 85 cents a mile for every mile you're over your allowance. You know, this is really bad news stuff. And it's, it's too bad. And also, try to return the car early. This is really a headache. In addition, if you move to another state, you have to renegotiate the whole thing and it may cost you more. In the, and now we're going into housing and this one is very, very interesting. So let me just ask you, uh, let's try to describe right now an ideal housing arrangement. I'm going to tell you what isn't ideal so you can begin thinking. And isn't ideal would be if you lived in an apartment building and you had people below you and above you and on both sides of you, all four of your neighbors that like to play loud rock music on Sabbath. <laughs> that wouldn't be ideal housing, would it? So what is an ideal housing arrangement? Anybody have an idea? Single family home, I like that. The Bible says when a man gets married, what should he do? Leave his father and mother and start his own house. Very important, okay? Anything else? Where should it be? Ideally in a rural location if possible. I know we don't live in an ideal world. By the way, I have told this to people four times in New York City after 9-11. I've been at the Morris Park Church in the Bronx and the Brooklyn Temple and other churches there. And I just say, I know we do not live in an ideal world, but if we did, people would not be crowded together in large cities. It's really important to know that. Okay, then anything else? Ellen White has lots of good counsel. One of them is on high ground. I can tell you that as an attorney, whenever we do a, t a title search and we, we help somebody with a real estate closing, all plats now in most states in the United States must print on them if they're in a floodplain. <laughs> Many of you know the flooding in the Midwest that we had along the Mississippi River a couple years ago. There was a CNN, a young woman, was doing an interview of a man's house that he didn't just have water in the front porch. His whole house was underwater. All that was sticking out was his TV antenna. He could drive a boat right across the top of his house. And he said, this happened to me three years ago also. And the news reporter said, why don't you just sell out and move to high ground? What was his answer? Who would buy my house? You understand? So you have to clean it all out and, and, and start all over again. All the sheetrock, all the carpet, you know, a lot of stuff, just shot. Just a total mess. So high ground. Ellen White even talks about high ground. Now I'm going to tell you one other thing, and this is the important one of why I'm talking to you about it. Paid off. 
This is, remember I told you, ideal, debt-free, no mortgage. By the way, do you know why houses cost so much? The only reason houses cost what they do is because credit is available. If you could not borrow money, the average house would sell for less than 100000 It's true. Isn't it true? Now, I'm going to tell you something really interesting. We have to deal with reality. And I know we don't live in an ideal world, but I'm going to show you some things that would be very, very valuable to you. By the way, I always have people come to me and say, but my CPA said I shouldn't pay my house off because I need the interest deduction. If your CPA tells you that, what time is it? Time to get a new CPA. Because it is not good business sense to spend a dollar to save a quarter. Do you understand? Your best deal is having your house debt free if possible, and certainly by retirement time. But I will just tell you, uh, buying in that sense is better than renting, and we'll be able to see why in a few minutes. But renting, what's the problem with renting? You, you don't have any ownership interests in it, you understand. It's not sinful, you understand that, and there are certain circumstances when it should be probably appropriate. So we're going to go down and look here. Here's some of the advantages to renting. Mobility, no hassles of trying to sell your house when it's time to ready to move. Another one is fewer responsibilities because the owner handles the maintenance, the property taxes, and the casualty insurance. By the way, if you're renting, you should have some kind of insurance. What kind should it be? Renter's insurance. If you have anything of value at all, it's not covered by the homeowner's insurance that your landlord has. You have to have your own insurance. Okay, by the way, another person asked me during one of the breaks, what about life insurance? Didn't Ellen White say that we shouldn't buy life insurance? Have any of you heard that? Well, the real interesting thing is that in the days of Ellen White, when she wrote that, about 1880 to the year uh, 1900, insurance companies in America were almost total shams, fraudulent. People would pay then months and months and months, years into insurance policy, and when the insured person dies, their family might get 60 cents. I mean, this is actual recorded fact. It's incredible. The bottom line is she did encourage casualty insurance, like fire insurance on your home and so on. By the way, if your house burns down and you have to provide insurance, that insurance pays off the lender first, you understand. So you, there's, there's various ways to what we call risk management. And we don't have time to do that this afternoon, but I'll just show you. Another one is the initial lower cost when getting into a house or apartment when you rent. Typically, I don't know what it is around here, but most of the time it's two months rent, one month deposit, and one month rent or whatever. But the fact is, uh, you have to move out you know, with everything in order or you lose that last month and so on. There's other things, but lent renting is probably the best option for these kinds of people. Those seeking temporary housing, those who don't want the responsibility of home ownership. But listen carefully, if you happen to be one of those persons, if time lasts and you retire, what are you going to be still doing? Renting. And those who don't have sufficient savings to make a down payment on a house. So I'll show you when you're ready to buy. Disadvantages of renting, renters don't enjoy the financial advantages that homeowners do. What are the financial advantages of homeownership? First of all, appreciation in the, in the property itself. Another one is you get tax deduction credit for interest that you pay on the home mortgage on your income tax. Isn't that true? And you're building up uh, equity in the property, typically. That will be very valuable. By the way, in the recent economic turndown, houses in some places have lost 15 or 25 percent. 
for most people who've been in it, they're still going to make money when they sell their house. They're just not going to make as killing like they thought they were going to. Do you understand? It still was better than renting. That, that's the whole point. Okay. Oh, let me just see. what I, Did I miss anything there? Uh, tenants can't deduct mortgage interest and property taxes or a benefit from home equity. Okay. Now, there's types of homes that people can buy. And that's a single family home, which in my personal opinion is, is ideal. But a multi-unit dwelling like a duplex or a townhouse or a condominium, cooperative housing, manufactured home or a mobile home. And uh, my secretary was able to find a mobile home just getting delivered to somebody's house. And I'm going to tell you something interesting. It is called a mobile home. But I will tell you, 95% of them were never designed to move more than once. And that's from the dealer's place to your place. Do you believe I'm telling you the truth about that? Yes. See, see if you can pull one across America and what it would look like on the other end of the trip. I mean, this is, it's not a travel trailer. It's just designed to roll to your place and be set up there. Okay, three important considerations. It may lose value over time, making them difficult to sell. Where a stick-built house or a custom house will typically increase in value, mobile homes typically decrease in value. In addition, financing may be difficult to obtain. I counseled with a couple who had been paying 20 years on a mobile home at one of our camp meetings recently, and they still owed more than they paid to start with because it was set up in such an unusual financial way. But typically, it's 50% it's, uh, more than what you would pay for a conventional home interest-wise. Like you get a 6%, you pay 9% for a mobile home. And then, of course, I just mentioned this poor construction quality. Now, there are different levels of quality, as you may know. But the fact is, in, in general terms, they're not designed to move. So buying a home, what should you think about? You may not get all the features when you buy your first house. Those are called a starter house. But financial advisors suggest that you get into the house market by purchasing what you can afford. Now, I'm going to tell you something interesting. Would you like to know the kind of house I live in? It may be of interest to you because people think, well, you know, you're all close to retirement age and you're an attorney and you've, you know, lived for, with your same wife for 40 years and all that. You probably have a mansion. What I have is a Ryland house that has blue, light blue vinyl siding on the outside. By the way, if that happens to be a favorite of yours, you should tell God in prayer before you get to heaven because it's not going to be used up there, I don't think. Do you understand? Not light blue anyway. But that is what we could afford when we moved to Maryland because the properties there were twice as high, the cost of buying a home, as to where we had lived in Georgia in the Southern Union before that. Do you understand? So you buy what you can afford to pay off. And by God's grace, it's increased in value because of inflation in the time we've lived there. So we're not going to lose money on our house. But you, then I can say, as you move up in the housing market, your second or third home can include more of the features that you want. Now, here is going to be a great shock to people. And that is, you are ready to buy a home when your debts are either paid off or under control. This is the one that's really hard. You have a 20% down payment. I'm going to tell you something interesting. Almost all of the homes that are being foreclosed in America had either no down payment or 5%. The people are upside down on their loans. They owe more than they're worth, you understand. It's really, really incredible. So another one, if you have, I don't know if we're going to have enough time to get into this, but 
if you have a 20% down payment, you don't have to pay private mortgage insurance. And that's a big, big deal. And it can be typically 20, uh, you know, 1% uh, of the value of your home each month, which is really pretty amazing. And, and for example, in a typical house, it might be three or $400 that you pay each month. By the way, it's private mortgage insurance, but it only pays off the mortgage lender should you default on your home. It doesn't benefit you at all. So if you were under 80% of, you know, uh, of their finance charge, that means that you would not have to pay private mortgage insurance. I have a whole chapter, a whole section in the book about that. You can read about it. And then also, uh, you have to know that you can afford the monthly payments. And by the way, that would include taxes and insurance, usually not more than 35% of your gross income. In the past, mortgage lenders would look out after you because they would ask you to present a balance sheet to them and a budget to them, and they would not let you borrow more than 35% of your gross income per month. You know, the payment would not be more than that amount. Many of the subprime ninja loans that were sold by mortgage lenders in America in the last four years were more than 50% of the monthly income of people who are making payments. Absolutely incredible. They should have never been given to begin with. But the fact is they, they are and people are having all kinds of problems. So what do you do? Due to severely inflated home prices, buyers have few options if they want to get other than a traditional home mortgage for either a 15 or 30 year mortgage. And then they have to plan to accelerate the payment of the mortgage by prepaying the principal. That's what I'm going to show you now. And you're going to find this to be very, very interesting. I won't talk to you about private mortgage insurance anymore. Uh, let me just see here. Uh, we're going to go on to something different. Okay. I'm going to show you this one thing. A generation ago, it wasn't possible to overload on a mortgage because lenders didn't allow you to do it. In other words, you had to go in there and demonstrate you could cap be capable. But however, in recent years, lenders began issuing unmanageable mortgages to people. And by the way, research has shown in the courts of America that many of the loans were made to people that they knew couldn't make the payments, and they're doing it called loan to own. In other words, they would spend all their money they could making the payments and the down payments, and when they foreclosed on them, the, the company would sell it to somebody else and do the same thing again to them. So uh, let me just show you. One study showed that people who make down payments of less than 5% of the purchase price of their home are 15 to 20 times more likely to default than those who put down 20% or more. I don't think I'm going to spend, this is the thing I was talking about, <clears throat> the own-to-loan situation. Lenders found that foreclosing can be more profitable than simply, simply collecting monthly mortgage payments. Uh, those are really crazy. Okay, <clears throat> what I'm going to do is show you now how to pay off a house. I'm not suggesting that anybody go out and get a long-term mortgage, but I'm saying if you're involved in a mortgage or you're contemplating buying, here's the way to do it. Real interesting. Remember, it's a big decision because this is based on Luke 14. You have to count the cost to see if you're able to afford it. Remember, location is important. Remember, location, location, location. It's not just high ground, but it's in an area where the resale value will continue to be up. You don't want to buy the biggest house in a subdivision or buy in a subdivision where it's going down in value. <clears throat> now we're going to talk about the 30-year mortgage. This is the typical mortgage in the United States, 30 years. By the way, you can now get 40-year mortgages in America. When I gave this seminar 
to a church camp meeting. It was on one of our academy campuses, and I was giving the seminar in, a, in the church on the campus. There's maybe 400 people there. A pastor came to me after the service and said, I wish you had been here just two weeks ago. And I said, what do you mean? He said, listen to these numbers now. I'm 63 years old, he said, and we're contemplating retirement at age 65. And we, I'm the pastor of a certain district, and we like the area, so we have built our retirement house there. And two weeks ago, we signed the mortgage for our retirement house for 40 years. Now, he's 63 years old. Now, you wouldn't think people would even loan money for that. I had a lady in my office who was 70 years old. And she still owed $40,000 in student loans. She had gone back in midlife to get a master's degree in social work, and she got some loan that would provide not only the, the tuition, but also living expenses during the time. And she's not going to get live long enough to pay it back. Incredible. At any rate, when this man told me he had a 40-year mortgage at age 63, by the way, he's going to be 103 if he lives that long when he pays it off. But at any rate, as a counselor, you're not supposed to appear shocked by anything. But I know I was shocked, and I didn't say I was shocked, but I'm sure he could tell by just my general attitude. But I knew this person, so I said to him, what were you thinking about? We're all going to be up in heaven enjoying the millennium, and you're going to be down here paying on your house. And the, the more interesting thing, however, is... Listen carefully to what I'm going to tell you next. Several people have talked to me about this in the breaks today already. About borrowing money to give to the cause of God. That is not biblical and it is not from the spirit of prophecy. It is very, very clear. If we have excess property, we can divest ourselves of some of the assets and put the money in the cause. But listen carefully. Somebody once said to me, I've got this wonderful idea. Why doesn't everybody get a line of credit on their house, you know, to get all the money they can out of it, their equity? Why don't they max out the line of credit on their credit cards and put all that money into the cause of God? And we can thumb our nose at the devil on the way to heaven and say, you take care of it during the millennium. What is wrong with that picture? Well, first of all, it's unresponsible. But more than that, remember that there's a time between now and the second coming called the time of trouble that was never was like there was a nation. Do you remember that? Daniel, the 12th chapter, verse 4. The people who are in debt are going to have the worst time of it during the time of trouble and will likely go to jail. Did you hear what I just said? I'm going to tell you why I think that. If somebody sues you for a debt you owe them and you still don't pay them, then they're in contempt of court and could actually go to jail. Do you understand? And at a time when you can't buy or sell, wouldn't you want to be debt free anyway? You understand. It's very, very important that we understand that. Okay. So I'm going to tell you a typical situation. We have about 15 more minutes, don't we? Because I want to go through this really valuable stuff for you. Here it is. Let's just say that a young couple gets married and they decide we should buy a house instead of renting in our early years. And so they go out and they buy their first house. There's a term of art for this called a starter house. It's not your dream house by any stretch of the imagination, but it's what you could afford then. 
So they get married and they buy their starter house and they start making payments on it. They start their family and they send their children through, the, you know, raise them through the preschool years, send them to elementary school, academy, and college. The kids get married and leave home, start families of their own. What are mom and dad still doing? In 30 years, all that can happen, so they're still paying on their starter house, right? How many of you think that's typical? Don't raise your hand. It isn't, because very few families keep their starter house more than about eight years, if that long. Then they say, well, when we got married, this was all we could afford. But now it's not in the part of town we like. It's not near the church, not near the mall, whatever. We're going to sell this house, and we went on the tour of homes, whatever. We found this home that we like, and we're going to buy that one. You see what I'm saying? And then they buy another house for 30 more years and so on and so on. You're going to see something really amazing in just a minute. So what I'm going to tell you, many families keep doing that, and some of them are still paying on their house when they're retired, which should never happen. Okay. I know you can't see this in the back, so it, it's in the book, but I will just tell you really what it is. It's just comparing two families. Two families called, one's the biggers and the other's the smalls. That's their last names. And it's just how they, they one's following God's seven-year plan and one's doing the conventional 30-year plan. And uh, God's plan is the best. I'll just tell you that. That's the end of that story. Okay, now I'm going to show you something called an amortization schedule. When you look at the book, there's one in the book here, and most people would not even read it. They just turn the page. But if you understand what I'm going to show you next, it is absolutely amazing how quickly people can pay off their house if they understand how to do it. So I'm going to show you some things to think about. Whenever you borrow money, borrow as little as possible. In other words, come up with all the cash you can. Then you make the payback term as short as possible, not as long as possible. I talk to people even today about student loans, and I will just tell you something interesting. Some student loans, the rate of interest is higher than home mortgages right now. It's absolutely true. And you can stretch those out. People, I mean, even today, people talk to me about over 8%. And I will just tell you, and now you can amortize a student loan over 30 years. Remember what I told you yesterday? If you're contemplating getting married, ask your chosen one what their student loan level is because if you marry that person you just inherited the debt and this is important not that you wouldn't marry them but you go into it with your eyes open you understand that's the point okay uh, another one by the way if you see new honda accord 299 a month this is in your local newspaper it doesn't even tell you what the total price is or how many months you pay if it doesn't tell you they don't want you to know you're going to pay on it for six years this is interesting but I will just tell you, you want to make the payback term as short as possible. Also have a fixed rate of interest. By the way, let me just tell you this is really, really incredible. I'll try to describe it. And I know it's kind of crude the way I would illustrate this. But most of the ninja loans or the subprime mortgage people were told by brokers, we can get you financing for this house. But when you actually go to the closing, they'll say, well, since you have a subprime mortgage, which means that you don't have the credit rating that we would like to see you have, and you're also doing less than uh, 80%, you know, uh, or more than 80%, less than 20% down payment, you qualify only for a subprime mortgage. Do you realize that many of the subprime mortgage people were paying twice the current interest rate? That would be like 125 to 15% rather than 6.5%. In addition, the companies were charging them variable rate interest. 
So if I have a 100% loan and a high interest, I can barely make the payments if they're like 50% of my income. So it's like standing in a swimming pool in the high end and it's flat the whole way and all is sticking out is your nose. And if that's all that's sticking out, how much would it take to drown you? A three inch wave, I mean, you're dead. Isn't it true? And the three inch wave is when your mortgage rate adjusts a half a percent, you're dead. You just can't make it. You have to file for bankruptcy. You walk off and leave your house. It's just incredible. And all the money you put in it for closing costs and all that stuff. So I'm just gonna tell you, have a fixed rate of interest. Be sure there's no prepayment penalty. A prepayment penalty means that most people will take the, the loan money anytime you wanna pay them, but they loaned you the money to get the interest. So they have a prepayment penalty sometimes, which means if you pay it off early, you still have to pay part of the interest. But you want to make sure there's no prepayment penalty. So that needs to be in your contract. You can pay this off and save interest, okay? Another one, avoid personal surety. That's being upside down on the loan. Shop for the money. Do not purchase credit life insurance. Would you like to know four good reasons not to purchase credit life insurance? Here they are. The first one, you have to die to win. You understand what I'm talking about? If you die, the mortgage gets paid off, but you have to die. If you get sick and can't work, or you lose your job, does credit life insurance help you? No, you have to die to win. By the way, if you are the breadwinner of your family and you have significant debts, like your home mortgage, a student loan, or whatever else, what kind of insurance should you have? a simple term life insurance policy that will pay the full face amount. And that leads me to the second thing. Credit life insurance is declining in value with every payment. If you had a $50,000 credit life insurance policy for you know expensive car or whatever, and you made all, paid 59 of the 60 payments, then you died. You're not gonna get 50,000 to your estate. They just give them the last payment. Do you understand? It's, this is incredible, really. And another thing is that's debt specific. You don't have 50,000. All you have is for one debt. So if you have 10 debts, how many credit life insurance policies would you need? 10 of them. In addition, it's the most expensive insurance sold in America. But every time you buy something on credit, they want to sell you credit life insurance. And you think you're wise because you did that. The best thing to do would be get a simple term life insurance policy. Because since it's so expensive, they want to send it to you, sell it to you because the insurance agent makes more money from that kind of insurance than any other product that they sell. So those are the reasons not to do it. So you know what you're doing. Now, I'm going to show you one interesting thing, and I know you can't read this in the very back, but I'll just tell you that if you look at a $60,000 mortgage, the payment $617 a month for 30 years, you actually pay in interest only $162,000 in interest. That's th almost three times the cost of the, of the loan to start with. But if you did just one thing different, and that's got a bi-weekly payment, that is, if your payment is $617 a month, if you paid half of it every two weeks, guess what would happen? You would cut the life of the loan to 19 years, thereby saving yourself 11 years worth of house payments, and you would save yourself nearly $70,000 in interest. It's all, they wouldn't tell you that, of course. <laughs> this is interesting. And then one other thing, 
if you did a 15-year mortgage, the payment would be $720 a month instead of $617. So it's like $103 more, but you pay the loan off at half the time and save yourself $92,000 in interest that you never have to pay. But I'm going to show you this, and I really apologize that you in the back, I actually put this up and it's as big as we can get it in the room here. But I'm going to explain it to you, and it's in the book. But this is an amortization schedule. This is a computer printout of a $60,000 mortgage. I know that's not common today. They're much more than that. But this is an illustration. We have a $200,000 mortgage in the new book. But this is one that I'm familiar with, so I'll show it to you. If you pay, by the way, the payment is $617 a month. The first time you make a payment of $617, $600 goes to the bank for interest, and you only reduced your loan by $17 which is like part of a tank of gas or a large pizza, all you put on your house. Now the interesting thing, this is called an amortization schedule. It has the date you make the payment, the number of the payment, that is one through 360, the interest that goes to the bank, and the amount that you've reduced your loan and what you still owe is what this last column is here. Now, I'm gonna show you something amazing. I said to a young couple at a seminar like this one time, have you guys ever thought about doubling up your house payments? And the lady said, she's carrying a baby, and she said, Elder Reed, what do you mean? We can barely make our 617. There's no way we can do 1,234. But I said, don't you understand that when you make any house payment, you can make the next payment or any of the following payments and make principal only and make the whole payment? She said, what do you mean? I said, when you make your first payment of 617, you've paid all the interest that's due right then. If you had another $17 available right then, you could make your second payment and save yourself $599 in interest that you never have to pay, and your next payment is number three. Now, what I'm going to show you next is going to be really, really amazing. I usually tell people something interesting, and that is, Kathy and I had a yard sale when we were in our debt reduction mode. And we made $245 you know, clear from it. We actually made $265, but we told our kids that if they helped us, we would take them to Taco Bell. And we had a vegetarian burrito supper and drinks for all four of our family. But we ended up with $245. And so I'm going to show you something amazing here. If at the end of the first year, I've made all of my $617 payments, I've only reduced my loan by $217, I've given the bank $7,188, and I still owe $59,782. But if that month I had a yard sale and sold all of my junk, and I netted out $245. If I added that to my December payment, being careful to note this is extra principal, you understand, what would I just have accomplished? I paid all of next year's principal payments at one time for $245, and I saved myself $7,160 that I never have to pay. Is that incredible or not? By the way, the interesting thing is, some of you have calculators on your cell phone, divide 245 into 7,160, and it goes 27 times. That is 2,700% return on investment in one day. In addition, I will tell you this, there is no better and no safer investment of any kind than investing in your own debts. This is very important for you to know. Your goal in life is to become debt-free, including your home mortgage. Now I'm going to show you something else, and this is just kind of fun. This is because it's Christmas time. My mother-in-law, bless her heart, for many years would send Kathy and me gifts. And in, she used to send us actual stuff. 
you know, like a shirt or whatever, or several shirts, whatever. But anyway, later she started sending us $100 each. And so I, you know, I buy a lot of dress shirts and so on. So I would say, well, I went to Penny's and I found, you know, five dress shirts on sale, you know, right after Christmas and they were $20 a piece or whatever. And I've got myself five new dress shirts. Thank you so much. But when I learned this, I said to her, thank you for the $100 gift. And right at Christmas time, I was able to put uh, 19 and 19 and 19 and 19 and 20. You add those up, let's just say it's $96 and change. Don't ever give the bank just $100 because you want to keep them honest. You add it up to the exact cent. Send that in. But for under $100, I was able to make five payments on my house, shorting the loan by five months, you understand. And if you add up the interest that I saved there, it's 597 times five. Let's just say it's $600. Five and six is 30. I saved myself $3,000 in interest and made five payments on my house for my Christmas money. When I thank my mother-in-law, she then says, that's my boy. Do you understand? <laughs> Use your head. That's the point that I'm telling you. You can pay your house off very fast if you prepay principal. Now, I've got to tell you a bunch of disclaimers here. You have to make at least one full payment every month. Does everybody understand that? Because you have to pay the interest that's due from the last time. But you can make as many additional principal payments as you can afford to at any time, as long as there's no prepayment penalty. Most loans do not have it. But you can see that, and it's very, very valuable for you to know that. Oh, I'll just tell you something interesting. Would you like to know how you could make eight years worth of house payments in one year without spending any more money than you're currently spending? Would that be valuable? Okay, here we go. The first one is to make 12 regular payments. You understand? And then you could have a yard sale for the principal amount of next year's payments. So how many years have we got now? Two years paid off, right? Now look at this interesting part. If you've ever heard of an IRA, like an individual retirement account, it's more now, but typically over the years you could put $2,000 away tax-free. Guess what? If you put money in an IRA, which is a tax-deferred instrument, you cannot draw it back out until you're age 59 and a half, with except a few exceptions, unless you pay a 10% penalty and current interest uh, on it. You understand? This is amazing. Uh, or per, current taxes, I should say. It's current income in the year that you draw it out. It's very interesting. So, oh, by the way, if you had an IRA, what kind of interest would you be getting right now? Would under 10% be satisfied, everybody? Well, I'm going to show you something incredible. If you had this as your amortization schedule, you could start right here in year three and start 20, do this with an adding machine that has a paper tape because it's really fun to see it spitting out the top. And you can do 21, 22, 22, 22, et cetera. You know, all these payments you can do until your total, your subtotal is $2,000. I say pay the taxes on the 2,000, put the money on your home mortgage because if for 2000 on this particular loan, your paper tape will show that you just paid six years of house payments for $2,000 and saved yourself $42,000 of interest that you never have to pay. Why would anyone put money in an IRA if they still owed money on their house? Do you understand? It's to your advantage to become debt free. Now remember, some banks are unscrupulous. 
Did you hear what I said? Some banks are unscrupulous. So when you signed your name for your mortgage, they said, if you intend to prepay any of the principal, we want you to let us know in writing. And by the way, there are many people now clamoring for the $700 billion bailout. Why don't you help the people that really need it, not the fat cats that were getting million dollar salaries? But you know why they can't help me if I have a mortgage? Nobody actually knows where my mortgage is. Do you, you understand what I'm talking about? It has been sold so many times and bundled with so many things and sold by derivatives back and forth and so on. No one even knows where it is. This to me is incredible. But the fact is, what I want to show you here is some banks are unscrupulous. So if I were to send an extra check in for principal to my local bank, assuming they were holding the mortgage, the branch manager would say to the, all, they just grab the, the loan committee together, Mr. Reed sent us a check for this amount. What do you think he plans to do with it? And every last one of them would say, I'll bet you he wanted to prepay some principal on his mortgage. But since I didn't say it in writing, they will put it in my escrow account for taxes and insurance, even though I don't need any money there. Many banks will do this. But let me just tell you, the only writing that's needed is, you know that place where you sign your name? Right on the left side of the check, there's called a memo line. Just right on the memo line, extra principal for loan number so-and-so, and that's all the writing that's required. Or if you have a coupon, that a lot of the new loans have coupons, there's a line there that says extra principal. You can write the amount in there. But I wouldn't just send $50 or $100 or whatever. I would take a calculator and add up as many extra principal payments and send it into the cent so you will know, based on your amortization schedule, where you are in the schedule. You see what I'm saying? That's important to know. Okay. My goodness, the time is gone. I'm going to show you three quick quotations, and then I'll say the closing prayer. Larry Burkett, who now is, is deceased, but he's the one who started Christian Financial Concepts and Crown Ministries. It's my strong conviction that becoming debt-free, including the home mortgage, should be the first investment goal for any young couple or person. Once you've achieved that goal, then and only then should you invest in other areas. This is, it's not a sign of sophistication to be in the stock market when you owe a lot of debts. Ellen White said, had brother and sister B been economical managers denying themselves they could air this, have had a home of their own, and besides this, had means to draw upon in case of adversity. This is from Adventist Home 395. And then she made this interesting statement. We are not to feel disturbed if our neighbors build and furnish their houses in a manner that we are not authorized to follow. What do you think that means? We say keeping up with the Joneses. A lot of people don't realize it, but some people living on the earth are not planning to go to heaven. And if that was the case and they wanted a mansion, they would better build a here, right? You understand? But we have it on good authority. God is building us a nice place in heaven. So we need comfortable housing, but we don't need mansions because someday the whole thing's going to get burned up. That's important to understand. Okay, we'll have a prayer. If some of you have questions, I'll talk with you briefly afterward. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity to share this information. I pray that you will help us to be wise in regard to the management of the funds that you've entrusted to each of us. May your blessing and spirit be on us and bless this whole uh, organization and meetings that are going on here with your spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, 
please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.